On the Empire Podcast this week, we chained director Mike Flanagan to a bed, or more accurately, a portable recorder, and he's going to tell us about Stephen King's Gerald's Game. Plus, all the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that just can't quite get past this 280 characters thing. What is this? The Marvel Cinematic Universe? Game of Thrones? All 12 or 13 seasons of Supernatural? I don't know, <laughs> honestly. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I am joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is our geek queen who doesn't need 280 characters. She just needs six. Sam and Dean. Why is that? And their four nipples. Because they're, <laughs> they're always shirtless, aren't they, Helen O'Hara? Aren't they? This, this is the this is the infamous Run slander around. that will not die. You love it. I mean, I love the show. You love the n- nipply, I, I'm not nipply that, Dean. I'm not sure I'm as obsessed with nipples as maybe you think I am. But well, you, what, you, you're playing it. I'm the one who's bringing it up. That I'm obsessed with Sam and Dean's nipples. Is that what you're saying? Who balances M and M's on their nipples? Well, here? Uh, no comment. Me. No. Oh my God, we got a new new contender. New contender, because last but not least is our glorious and fearless leader, our Queen of the North. Uh, I didn't finish your intro, Terry White. Um, Something about 280 characters. What what would you need, what what do you not need 280 characters for? You love stuff. I love, I can say uh, Logan is amazing in three words. (laughs) Wait, Logan is amazing. How many characters is that? That's like. Logan is amazing. That's. uh, Many fewer than two, right? Yeah, about 16 characters. So I could say Logan is amazing once, or if I got 208 characters, I could say 174 times. The maths works, right? Yeah, quite that. Yeah, there you go. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll give you an introduction. Uh, last but not least, is our glorious and fearless leader, our Queen of the North, a lady who would use 280 characters to say Logan is amazing 174 times. Doesn't quite work out. It's Terry White! Hey! There you go. There you go. <laughs> the seamless. When that's, when that's edited, no one's going to know that I didn't actually have an intro finish for you. It actually finishes mid-sentence here. Uh, when we were putting this podcast together, when we were discussing the lineup for this podcast, um, I realised that I, I was the... Uh, how, how did you describe this, Terry? I said the you no. I said a rose between two vaginas, didn't I? Yes, you did. On work official email. <laughs> yes. Uh, Do you think that yes. gets flagged to HR immediately? <laughs> a I don't red know. light goes off in IT, yes. and somebody's like, "She's used the word vagina again." Everybody. <laughs> I think they've probably turned that particular light off since you joined. You know, since week one. Yeah, that is so much better than what I had written down here because I misremembered it. I thought you said I was the rose in a vagina sandwich, which is not. That's no. mixing metaphors. The sort of thing you ask for in Subway. That is mixing metaphors. <laughs> but hey-ho. Anywho, if you're a fan of Terry White saying the word vagina, you're going to love our Kingsman the Golden Circle spoiler special, which should be up any time now. Uh, I'm editing it, so sometime before Kingsman 3 is out. Uh, it also features <laughs> Matthew Fawn being very, very candid about his movie and all the developments in it, but not to the best of my knowledge saying the word vagina. Well, I mean, Terry makes up for it. Terry more than makes up for it. If um, Matthew Vaughan would like me to stand in for him ever to say the word vagina, I am available for hire. Vagina hire. <laughs> that, that's a different that's Vagina. A different thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, let's, let's Terry not. White is available for, for vagina hire, but oh. there's a huge asterisk next to that. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> this is going very well so far. We've got off on the wrong foot here, but... Hey, um, hey I, I've been watching The Deuce... Uh, okay. which is the new um, David Simon show about porn and ah. prostitution. So all of this reminded me of that. And uh, so far, I can thoroughly recommend it. How many Because doesn't a douche mean a... 
Deuce is in D-E-U-C-E, oh. but I'm trying to pronounce it so people will understand it despite my accent. Oh, so not, yeah. Not, yeah, n- <clears throat> not the kind of one that they had in Sausage Party. Yes, yes. As, as a character. How do you spell that? D-O-U-C-H-E, I believe. Of course, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, and well done on not just saying C-H-R-I-S. Hey. Well done, Helen, you missed the obvious joke, but hey-ho. Uh, right, so let's have a question that doesn't contain the fee word. Um, I hope, yep, it doesn't. I've just checked. It's from email. It's from Dave Highland, and he says, Hello, your podcast has crossed over to other ones by having clips played on Kevin Smith's Hollywood Babylon. Ooh. Has it? Have we? I mean, yes, obviously, because I listen to that all the time. Uh, or by various members guesting on other podcasts. Guilty as charged. Guilty yeah, as charged. Yeah, I am, yeah. Guilty as charged? Yes. Okay. Uh, so can I ask for podcast recommendations of podcasts that you have guested on and also your personal favourites? Uh, thank you, Dave Highland. So, um, well, we've both guested on the same one recently. Yes, we about have. About horror. Oh, yeah, another one. Well, yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, that which one. Is, yeah, okay, uh, but two of them. The... Episodes we've guessed on haven't gone out yet. Never mind, then we haven't. No, it's all fine. It's all good. Uh, so we've <laughs> guessed it on Evolution of Horror, which is a podcast by Michael Munzer. Um, and uh, I had a giddy old time being locked in a broom cupboard at the BFI. Yes, so did I. It was, it was very good fun. So I, th- I hope cupboard. that will be fun to listen to. Uh, yes. Um, and we've also done The Sinning Mile, which, yes, is, which is a very good podcast indeed. Great. Um, yes. Talking about, uh, you know, well, films. Cinema really. is a fantastic uh, concept. It won Best New Podcast at the British Podcast Awards last year, uh, which is what put it on my radar. Uh, phenomenal concept. So it's a married couple, Dave and Kathy, who are just the most wonderful people, and they've just had a baby. So Yay, congratulations, congratulations to Dave and Kathy. And the idea is that they walk to the local cinema and then they walk back and they record themselves as they do so. And it lasts about 25 minutes. So it's not one of those podcasts that just drones on and on <laughs> God, and those on. those are the worst. <laughs> forever and ever and ever and takes ages to get to the point and says vagina about 52 times and people switch off and then they go, they switch back on again and they go, is he still talking about the same thing? Yes, yes, yes he is. It's mm-hmm. not one of those podcasts. So uh, thoroughly recommend The Cine Mile um, and Evolution of Horror, even though we haven't heard the episodes we've been on, but they're yeah. great. Terry, what have you been on? What do you, rec- what, what do you recommend? So I've been on The Fear, which is... A- <laughs> <laughs> this is not just like a euphemism for life. I'm, I do The Fear daily, 24 yeah. hours a day. Uh, it is a, a podcast um, by a friend of mine called Sarah Morgan, who is a, a screenwriter um, and a comedy writer. And she basically does a podcast where she interviews funny people comedians and me apparently about uh about fear and horror films but also very much around what you fear anything that basically scares the shit out of you and it's it's amazing it goes off on lots of of brilliant tangents and yeah just the thread is stuff that scares you i'm gonna google that have check it out man i'm gonna subscribe right now that's what i'm gonna do uh so what 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 fears you what fears you terry what 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 scares you rocky 2 running now halfway through the tape just stopping many fears so i um i used to have a very long-running fear of ufos and aliens because i found a book once about ufos and aliens and it described how they came and kidnapped you and and did experiments on you Uh and i became convinced um during one six-week holiday from school that i was going to get kidnapped by aliens and experimented on so i didn't sleep for six weeks i think i was like 11 or something i didn't sleep for six (laughs) weeks because i was like this is even worse than home invasions because 
they don't need to kick your door in. They beam in through the walls and through the roof. Oh, whoa. So right. that <laughs> nuclear war, I was convinced for ages we were going to die in a nuclear yeah. war. Um, oh, my God. So that also provoked like a two-month period of insomnia slash kind of, you know, uh, depression about the futility of our existence. I feel like with the beaming in through the walls to abduct you thing, like you should read up on the impossibility of beaming technology, which is reassuringly totally help, right? super impossible. Like other things in Star Trek, totally doable. We're on the case. But that one, like super undoable from a physics point of view. Anyway, this has gotten slightly off the topic yes. from no, the podcast. No, no, it's, but, it's all good. So, right. you know, I, I, I would prefer not to be scared by kind of mundane things like dogs and what have you. I'd prefer to be... You scared of dogs? I am scared of dogs. Um, a little t- Yorkshire Terrier when I was nine bit me and ever since then I've been terrified of dogs and a dog did try and, like, attack me sexually once, so... Ew. Um, dogs are the worst. Dogs Apparently. are I love worst. dogs. I should dogs are the worst. I would be I would be letting down my journalistic training if I didn't follow up on that. Excuse me, what? An excited dog jumped on me when I was walking to my nana's house once. It was very upsetting. And ever since then, <laughs> I've been really scared of, of male dogs in particular. Okay, okay. All right, I got you. I got you. Uh, I have currently, I've just subscribed to The Fear. Look at this. What a lineup of guests. Phil Jupiter and Jason Manford. Rufus Jones. Alice Lowe, is your episode on here yet? Mine Terry, hasn't or? made it up yet. I mean, mm. I, I, I don't mean to jump to kind of you know mm. conclusions about why that might be. Each episode is explicit though, so I think it's yeah. been cut I'm, out. Unlike this one, of course. <laughs> yeah, so which uh, is family friendly. Anything else? Because here's the thing: because um, since we moved offices, we now we've moved to Camden, and which is much further away than uh, than the office used to be from my from my abode. Uh, I listen to podcasts every single day now. I you know I used to just listen to music, but now I listen to podcasts. I'm getting into a lot of new things, so that's good. Recommendations are are always useful. Helen, anything that I haven't heard? Well, what's uh, I have been listening to a few. Um, so I'm I've probably mentioned it before on here, but the Thrilling Adventure Hour, in particular, mm. the Beyond Belief segments are a uh, old-timey radio show as a new-timey podcast, and uh, they're done by a fantastic rolling cast in LA. They're done live, and then they you know, slightly clean it up for the podcast. Um, <laughs> but the Beyond Belief strand is like by far the best, so you've got to listen to those ones. They're about two drunks who just want to stay in and drink, and they keep getting called on to solve all these cases involving supernatural creatures. And both of them have their shirts on before you say anything, Chris. <laughs> Um, I've also been listening to The School for Dumb Women, which is uh, done by my friend Caroline O'Donoghue, and Soggy Bottoms uh, by Cat Brown, formerly of this parish. Yes. Soggy Bottoms. That's a podcast entirely about the Great British Bake Off, so if you're a fan of the show, it's it's essential listening. I love Bake Off. Love it. So I'm going to download that podcast right away, as soon as our Wi-Fi network allows me to. Uh, All right, so I'm going to recommend a couple of others as well. Uh, I used to guest on Jeff Lloyd's show uh, here on Absolute Radio. He and Annabelle Port had a a show for many, many years at Absolute Radio, uh, which is uh, a sister company, sister station. Uh, And now he and Annabelle have got a podcast called Adrift, which has just launched into a sixth episode. And that's a lot of fun, quite meandering podcast. If you like Jeff and Annabelle, that's uh, always good. Uh, There is the Unmissables podcast, which is, uh, again, a sister podcast. Mm -hmm. Heat have launched that. Uh, Boyd Hilton and Steph Seelin and and Kay Ribeiro have, uh, have launched that. So that's a lot of fun. Smurshpod, I've got to give a shout out to Smurshpod on which I have guested, but there's a fantastic forensic look at every Bond movie. And if you want to, 
Do you know this podcast where someone just drones on and on and on for ages and ages and ages? Uh, when I guested in this podcast, we talked for so long, they had to split it into two episodes. Um, and there are loads of great things. There's Anna Faris is Unqualified, which is a, a great podcast with Anna Faris uh, tackling people's real-life problems. There's obviously WTF with Mark Maron. The moment where Brian Koppelman, who is a co-writer of and co-creator of Billions, and a screenwriter in his own right, he's written The Likes of Oceans 13 and and uh, and rounders, and he does this in, in great uh, interview podcast called The Moment, which focuses on a major key moment in someone's life. And the guests he's had in that podcast are phenomenal. So check that out as well. Could go on forever and ever and ever and ever. I'm also going to give a shout out to the Anfield Rap, which isn't anything to do with film, <laughs> but has much to do with football and is awesome. And yes, I may have guessed it in that as well. Anyway, not important. And if you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, you can do so via a number of uh, means. You can tweet us. Where we're at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can also email us podcast at empireonline.com as Dave Highland did. And you can Facebook us as well, where we're Empire Magazine. Okay, so let's segue smoothly from recommending other people's products into this week's movie news, where we're talking about other people's products. Um, <laughs> there's loads of movie news this week, hasn't there? Isn't there? Isn't yeah, there? There, there is a bit. We've had our first look at the cast of the Avatar sequels. Because there's, I, I'm lengthening the S sound because there's yes. so many of them. Four sequels currently being shot, being shot concurrently in two blocks. Um, so the sequels are going in two by two, if you will. Mm. Um, uh, and it's mostly a, a cast of sort of unknown young actors. Navi babies, they'll hug a tree for you, Bobby Doopy Dop. Exactly that. <laughs> yes, because when they, as, as uh, somebody pointed out on Twitter. When they were cloning, you're making this hybrid Jake Sully avatar, Jake right? Sully. Jake Sully. They actually gave him working, you know, bits. I mean, not just working in the sense of, you know, able to do things, but like working in the sense of able to procreate, which is a whole other level of complexity, Ooh. man. That ah. is madness. So he has a massive avatar on, and then Ooh, that seems he, goes, wrong. he goes to town. He goes to town on the home tree. So anyway, there's some kids. Uh, that we know some of them at least are Jake and Notiris. Um And then there's also uh, some new ones from the Metkayina <laughs> clan. I, I mean, I'll be honest, I have actually had a Navi lesson, but it was a long time ago, so I forget. Anyway, they are a clan that live on the ocean reefs, I believe, uh, uh-huh. on the planet. Sure. Uh, and they're ruled by Cliff Curtis's Tonawari. Ah, uh, he's yes. a new addition to the cast, isn't he? He is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's yeah. some stuff happening. So yeah, so that 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 was announced this week that Avatar two and three are filming. They're going to be released in twenty twenty and then twenty twenty one, and then it's going to be a break of three years before Avatar. F- I'm lost count already. Four oh. hits in twenty twenty four with Avatar five, five. hitting <laughs> a year after that in twenty twenty five. Current political situation <laughs> allowing. Um, we'll see if we're all still here. Precisely. I imagine the Avatar sequels will will be built to withstand a nuclear Armageddon. You know, James Cameron's probably tricked out that soundstage. It's got nuclear bunkers up the wazoo. That, I mean, that is true. J- James Cameron, up until Titanic, I think, had a nuclear blast at some point in every film, pretty much. And Helen, uh, don't you think in many ways the iceberg could be read as a nuclear blast in Titanic? Wow, that's so deep. Oh, God. <laughs> no. Oh, but he told No? He told me that. Oh, I see. <laughs> sure. Then yes, I absolutely yes! think that. We concur, Chris. Yeah! Men rock! With your deducement. <laughs> yes! Um, 
Are we excited about this? I mean, I've seen a lot of backlash again this week. I th- I, what I like is I think they'll bring something tonally in terms of the youth, I think is really great in terms of giving this kind of yes. legs and bringing a kind of different energy to it. And I kind of, you know, there's been some debate about whether actually doing them, shooting them in the way he is when he described actually shooting multiple ones or working on mm. them concurrently in that way and not taking the break I think it's actually really good because while obviously they need to exist as standalone movies and have their own beginning middle and end you mm-hmm. you do want that thread and that kind of seamlessness I'm, I'm like if, however James Cameron he talked about this in a recent issue of Empire to our very own James Dyer <laughs> however he feels is the best way to make these movies I am fully fully on board yeah. with he always like we keep saying this but every time anybody's counted James Cameron out he has yes. proven them spectacularly mm-hmm. wrong. So yeah. I just feel like it would be the height of hubris to assume that this isn't that this is going to fail. I oh, think I agree. visually, I, agree. I what I'm most excited about is Avatar was such a uh, such a step on in terms just visually in terms of filmmaking generally, and I think whatever he brings, I I am full of optimism and hope and think we could be in for a whole new kind of visual evolution in cinema. It would be the hope with whatever happens next. Yeah, yeah. I'm intrigued by the break, uh, the three-year break between releasing films. So is he expecting, is he waiting for technology to catch up with his vision, mm. as of course George Lucas did when he was making the prequels? Uh, which is why he'll maybe stop around 2021 and then hopefully there'll be some new breakthrough. Because he hasn't really talked about these films in terms of a technological breakthrough. No. The last film, the first film, very much had that and very much had that must-see factor. You must go see this in 3D. And now, of course, people roll their eyes at 3D and they go, oh, 3D. Yeah. So I wonder if there's something. He's, he, maybe he's got something hidden up his sleeve, and a, and a group of vaguely punchable children doesn't seem to be. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to think what it what it will be, honestly, because I think visual effects people will tell you that right now they can pretty much do everything except a photorealistic human. Um, Sam Worthington still begs ext- to differ, <laughs> which is still extremely difficult. But give them enough time and money, they can do mm-hmm. everything. So most of what affects um, developments nowadays are actually finding out ways to do things in a way that takes less time and less mm. money. That's that's actually mostly the next frontier. So it's quite hard to see how you how you need more technology than he already has. Well, massively. I kind of wonder if the next step's really about how we watch it right. So I'm, I think VR has kind of become... Um, hasn't really gone where people expected it to so quickly. I think people imagined we'd all be sat there with head, individual headsets on, kind of not having a... a a communal experience in a cinema and mm. and all of the studios and all all big filmmakers are looking at VR obviously Disney are doing um a Vader kind of they see VR as a completely different and unique storytelling platform yeah. i think the the ways in which um we experience those films is going to be the next big thing and i think v- I, where VR goes next i think is is fascinating oh that's good yeah that's true hmm we it shall is, see it is fascinating because we three years away from the next one we're eight years away from the last one and who knows you're absolutely right it could be VR it could be cinema itself has changed yes. by that point so maybe 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 it's just going to become Jim Cameron come around your house with a copy of the, the DVD and just or whatever it is or beaming it directly into your eyeballs <laughs> that would be amazing okay, once again beaming he, technology <laughs> guys he opens his mouth and he emits the film in a beam of pure energy and light and then you will shit yourself with your mouth yeah, wide, wide open. open <gasps> Jim Cameron. No, let's stop there. No, I think... No, Chris. Maybe, maybe, no. 
Shall we move on to the next story? <laughs> I think we should. Hey, um, there has already been some... Uh, now, I'm not saying it until Monday, but there has already been some suggestion uh-huh. that Blade Runner 2049 may be the greatest freaking masterpiece that cinema has ever produced. There is some mm. who, you know, we, there are some people who have lost the ability to put on a coat after watching it. Well, we can't say officially, but it is better than the last 2047 Blade Runner films. Oh! <laughs> Anywho, uh, the director thereof, Mad Denis joke. Villeneuve, who's obviously also uh, director of very many good films at this point, he's pretty much not put a foot wrong yet. He's in discussions. Prisoners. Okay, he. Sorry, sorry. Hey, it's not bad. Sorry, no, it's not bad, but. It's just not just like. Everyone's great. rushing to anoint Denis Villeneuve as the greatest thing since uh, Sliced Pan. And I just. I just <laughs> saying that he has made some films that are not five star masterpieces. Like I, because of Prisoners, I got to sit in a room with Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman at the same time. <laughs> so. so you're thinking six stars. <laughs> All right, okay. Anyway, Denis Villeneuve is now in discussions for the famously disaster-proof Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film that has been linked to David Fincher, Paul Greengrass, and James Cameron. None of them got it off the ground. This is a film that the the 1963 incarnation of which um, famously just destroyed every budget that had ever existed in the world and is still, apparently, if you just for inflation, one of, if not the most expensive films ever made. And yeah, it's back on the table. It's been, mm-hmm. you know, it's been in development at Sony. The word is that he's going to sort of take it back and and go back through it again. Angelina Jolie was originally lined up to play uh, the lady herself. Mm-hmm. Is that still the case? Nobody knows. So uh, it's it's very exciting that he's signed on to to this. It's still a long way down the road because he's also got Dune on his to-do list because this is a guy who is clearly terrified of nothing. He would have nothing to talk about on the Fear podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, you know that's that's a heck of a that's a heck of a playlist. That is a that is a big to do list right there. Intriguing. Mm. We shall see what happens with that. Do you think it's going to be in three D? Cleopatra coming at you. <laughs> now no? I do. Okay. Now I hope it's so. got to it's got to happen. It's got and, to happen. and we've got the theme tune right there. So <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about it. Terry. Are you excited about that? Anything, Denis? If, if Denis Villeneuve made a movie version of the Empire podcast, it would probably be, be all right, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. It would. I mean, you know, we are talking about, you can edit this out, but I wasn't listening to the first bit of that. I was distracted by something else. <laughs> what were we talking about? We, we were talking about Denis Cleop- Villeneuve. Uh, Denis uh, Villeneuve. Now we're, gonna, we're leaving Villeneuve. this in. Denis Villeneuve is directing, or potentially directing, a version of Cleopatra. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I'm okay. With you. Terry's fully on board. Terry's fully on board. Um, so I, I mean, I have to say, I. Arrival was one of my films of last year, yeah, and it was one of the surprises I think of of last year. And and we can't really talk about it, but I I may have seen another film of his that is is rather good. So I think he's a very exciting filmmaker. I think, um, especially in terms of production design and sound design, he's doing really exciting kind of groundbreaking stuff so um, I'm fully on board at this point obviously I will hop off at a moment's whim um, <laughs> with no really real good reason behind it but right now yeah. I'm in a happy place yeah if Cleopatra's rubbish we'll turn on him yeah well we made him 
Because we made him. We made him. We made him. <laughs> but as a as a we'll break him. as a character in history, she has she's actually incredibly, especially for a female character, um, incredibly nuanced, incredibly textured, yeah. incredible stories, incredible history. Um, as kind of source material, you've got tons and tons and tons to deal with, and obviously just visual, your starting points visually would kind of be insane. It would be amazing. Um, I I I wonder. I don't think that they'll cast Angelina Jolie now. I don't think that will happen. I think they will be more racially sensitive than that. I would so, hope so. So who yeah, do you think? An unknown? So. I would personally go unknown. I, I think, mm. yeah, there, there's ample possibility for that. But um, but it's possible I'm not thinking of people who would be perfect for it. I don't know. So here's some interesting news. Yeah. So Michelle Williams has gone through her, her career <laughs> and she's built this this wonderful reputation as an actress of, of taste mm. uh, who chooses her projects really, really carefully. And what she hasn't done is she hasn't taken... The blockbusters. She yeah. hasn't taken the comic book movies. She hasn't taken the sci-fi stuff. She hasn't been in a Star War or a Harry Potter or any of that stuff. No, she's... Until now. <gasps> what? Mm. She's going to be in Venom. Well, I mean, if you were going to break your anti-comic book stance for one movie, it would be... It so, would... I'm sorry, I can't... <laughs> <laughs> Every day Christmas Eve. Every day is Christmas Eve. Every day, Every day is Christmas, Christmas Eve. Eve. Look, Tom Hardy is in place to star. We all know he's a good actor. I'm going to get you Spider-Man. <laughs> Riz Ahmed is in the film. We all know he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle Williams is brilliant. They've they've got to have been tempted there by something. Yes. And, I, and it can't just be bucket loads of cash. So there must Are be you something. Sure about in, that? There yes. must be something great happening. One would hope. And I think she she does make obviously has an incredible eye for what to take and what not to take she, from indies to big. I mean, but she, you're right; she doesn't really go in for the kind of big traditional blockbuster. She's very savvy about the choices she makes. But then, you know, she's doing Greatest Showman, which is out yeah. this Christmas, and uh, which I went on set of, and I was really surprised that that was something she chose to do. Um, it's a, an original musical, a Hugh Jackman. Um, it's a first-time filmmaker. It isn't what I would see as a typical kind of uh, Michelle Williams mm. role. So I'm kind of fascinated by by the choices she's making at the moment. And arguably, choosing to do the likes of Venom and the likes of Showman is actually more surprising than her choosing to do potentially another indie. Yeah, Manchester by the Sea or quite, something again, yeah. Quite. And I think she just is showing her range. And and, and as you say, Helen, I really think f- there must be something in the script. There must be something cr- from a creative perspective, you'd imagine, which kind of really lit her fire because she doesn't need to do it for any reasons, reputational or financial, you'd imagine. Yeah. So you have to believe that there's a creative pull for her for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also very excited about The Great Showman because I went to that presentation thing when I was in that place mm-hmm. and there was a bit of talk about it and a few songs from it and I think mm-hmm. it's going to be cool. I wasn't on set and I haven't seen anything wow. of it. It's Why are you I'm, even here? Man? I'm yeah. just as excited as you guys are and for... Just equally valid reasons. I think it's. I think it's actually going to be amazing. It was. It's been. You know, in in kind of works for eight, ten years, and it was before um, La La Land, basically because there hadn't been an original Hollywood musical in in t- more than twenty five years. Yeah. And it's Hugh Jackman, and he's been the person who's really powered this project and has kept it going for years and has really pushed it. And the cast is amazing. Yeah. And I think it's it's going to be really, really exciting. And I kind of feel for them in a way coming after La La Land because, you know, it looks like they're kind of jumping on that that bandwagon. Um, but also at the same time, you could argue that La La Land has laid a lot of groundwork for original musicals to actually be made yeah. again and be yeah. seen as a viable commercial property. And wasn't it 
It was greenlit before. You were on set, I'm pretty sure, before La La Land even came out, right? No, or am I after, my timeline? but it had been, been kind of in the works and they hadn't been able to find a director, but Hugh's been attached pretty much all along. Um, and then it all came together very quickly, but some of the guys who wrote the musical also worked on but worked on both La La Land and Showman. They're now Oscar So the winners. songs are going to be... The songs are great. In, so there is I one mean, song in particular, which <laughs> I wouldn't name, um, but I think people are going are to really love the music. I'm really fascinated to see that. I don't know how, because nothing rhymes with circus. So how are they going to get past that? They're going to have to give up. Andy Circus. Andy Circus. <laughs> Andy Circus at the circus. Uh, I'm very excited about this. Uh, Joe Cornish is back behind the, the camera once again. He is directing a film. It started filming this week. Um, and it is called The Kid Who Would Be King. And it is the story of King Arthur. But uh, don't worry, it's not Guy Ritchie's version. It's a, a new, modern, updated version and focusing on uh, a 12-year-old uh, version of Arthur uh, played, called Alex and played by uh, Andy Serkis's son, would you believe? I would believe I would. it. Did yeah. you know that? Would you, would you believe it um, because he, he's called Louis Circus? And how many circuses are there? How many circuses are there? There's uh, Barnum's and there's uh, that that one that comes into town every so now. So anyway, again. yeah, um, no, it's, that's that's great news, and it sounds kind of interesting uh, as a concept. I mean, we all saw that picture of the little girl who actually did find Excalibur recently. Mm-hmm. That's the version of the story I'm going with. So this this feels natural. It feels right that a kid should find Excalibur, and and goodness knows we could do with one. And this is yep. Patrick Stewart and Rebecca Ferguson as well, right? So, yes. and it, I mean, as as terms of casting, yeah, that's pretty um, it's pretty stellar. And you know, anything I think Joe Cornish is um, again a really interesting filmmaker telling telling really different original story. And I think this this is what's kind of really exciting about mm. about this. Thank mm. God. Well, it's, it, it's been too long. Yeah, it it's been happened. too long since uh, Attack the Block, and it's good to see him get back behind the camera again. And it's been widely publicised and he flirted with a number of projects over the last few years, including uh, Die Hard 5 and Star Trek Beyond and and The Flash, I think, was on, was potentially something that he was he was associated with as well. But he's held out and he's decided to do something original. So that is great. And we wish, we wish him all the best. Yeah. And uh, anything else real quick? Yeah, a couple, a couple more quick ones. Um, uh, speaking of greatness, Leonardo DiCaprio and his BFF, Martin Scorsese, are looking together to, are looking to work together again um, on a film about uh, former US President Teddy Roosevelt, which they're going to call Roosevelt. Which is confusing Ooh. because unless it's going to open like a whole Roosevelt cinematic universe and they're going to go on to Franklin D and so on as well. It's But anyway. Um, Ted was taken, I think. <laughs> I, oh, that might be why. Anyway, so they are um, they're apparently teaming up. Apparently DiCaprio's been trying to get this off the ground for a few years now, but the, the previous draft didn't kind of go anywhere. Um, he's got Scott Bloom writing the most recent version with Scorsese adding it to his to-do list and so Paramount have snapped it up. So Roosevelt did have an amazing life. Um, he was a big outdoorsman. He had uh, early military successes. Um, his political career took him up through New York where I think he was police commissioner and then he was governor and then he became vice president and then he, then the president was assassinated and he became the president and was known for all of his work pre- um, protecting national parks um, and the general outdoors because mostly because he liked going hunting in them. But you know, we'll take the the side effect of having the national parks, which are amazing. Scorsese and DiCaprio are already working on a couple of other things as well, but this is further down their to do list and uh, sounds quite like it could be quite cool. Because mm. yeah. I I read this and I was like, isn't he too young? 
to play Roosevelt, but I think he's actually the exact age yeah. that Roosevelt was when he became president. People were just older in those days. They were. It's the whiskers. It is. <laughs> I've, I looked at Tony Blair the other day, just random, but I looked at Tony Blair the other day and I was like, wasn't he like 50 when he became prime minister? And I think he was only <laughs> like 40 or something. He just seemed older. But, People do. The weight of that authority. Um, And in other good news, Phil Lord and Chris Miller have another job lined up and it is adapting Andy Weir's latest novel, the guy who wrote The Martian. Um, His new novel is called Artemis and it would be uh, sort of a proper sci-fi rather than semi-grounded sci-fi this time. Uh, Focuses on Jazz Bashara, who is lives in the titular city, which is uh, a city on the moon, the first one built. Um, And she is trying to make a bit of money by smuggling. A huge score drops in her lap. And of course, a massive amount of trouble follows it because that is the way of huge scores. So yeah, it hasn't been published yet. It's out in November, but it sounds like with with those people involved... So have they got a hold of it? Got to be pleased. They probably... Have they pirated it off the internet? They've pirated it off the internet. They they actually did a sort of Tom Cruise-style raid on the publishing house, so stole the manuscript. Lord lowers himself down from behind Andy Weir's shoulder, taps him on the shoulder. Andy Weir turns around. Yeah. There's nothing there. That's yeah. when Miller comes down on the right-hand side. On the side, other shoulder. Takes a picture of the screen. Yeah. But they had to do that like 400 times. Like a times. lot of times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. Probably need a new plan, guys. That's all I'm saying. We See, are... I'm, I'm excited by this. Well, by them doing by that? The... <laughs> Basically <laughs> them doing that. Uh, I think they're they're really interesting, the pair of them. And I, I was actually really excited about the uh, the uh, Han Solo situation. R&D. But but I, I think they're really exciting. I saw them do a panel and they've got insane energy. Mm-hmm. To, and you're kind of like, how are you guys directors? Like they're, they're so much fun and have such an insane passion for it. And you kind of hoped that the Han Solo thing hadn't entirely bruised them. Mm. Um, I think this is a really interesting project for them to kind of bounce straight to next. Definitely. Very, very last thing we'll talk about is uh, It Chapter 2 has had a uh, release date, 6th of September 2019. So those kids had better grow up fast. <laughs> hey. I mean, just look, look, just call somebody, check Amy Adams' schedule and get her in. You know, it'll be fine. Oh, also this week That's we the had. the worst f- Bill Denbro casting I've ever heard. <sighs> um, also this weekend, or this week, we had the first trailer for Annihilation, which is the new one for oh, Alex yeah. Garland. Yes. I'm not even going to try to describe it. Just. Just see it. It looks absolutely mind-blowing. Cannot wait. Fully agreed. Um, <laughs> yeah, it looks fantastic. looks really good. And that's based on a book as well, which is uh, intriguing. So he's mm-hmm. not doing his own thing for his follow-up to Ex Machina. Uh, right, okay. So it is time now for this week's guest. Uh, I know I said Ridley Scott would be on the show last week, this week, uh, but we're holding him for next week's podcast when Blade Runner 2049 comes out. And you can you can bask in the glow of Ridley and Denis Villeneuve. Uh, but our guest this week uh, is one of the finest new directors on the horror block. He's got movies like Oculus, Hush, and Ouija, Origin of Evil, under his belt. Uh, so he's very, very used to, I'd say, single location horror movies. Uh, but Mike Flanagan, for It Is He, has long yearned to direct Stephen King's seemingly unfilmable book, Gerald's Game. And he's cracked it. He's cracked it. He's brought it to Netflix. It starts this Friday, September 29th. Uh, it stars Carla Guccino. Uh, she plays uh, Jessie, who is a wife who is left handcuffed to a bed in a remote cabin when her husband, played by Bruce Greenwood, keels over from a heart attack during a thanks game. Uh, so I spoke to Flanagan when he came into London recently and we gently geeked out over all things King. So please do 
Enjoy. Uh, delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Mike Flanagan. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Are you really wonderful or are you uh, jet lagged to hell? Super jet lagged, <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted and uh, barely coherent, <laughs> but I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Well, I'm barely coherent at the best of times and I don't have the jet lagged excuse. So <laughs> this should be a fun 20 minutes. It should be, yeah. uh, should be okay. Uh, so uh, obviously, uh, Gerald's game is uh, hitting Netflix. Yeah, very very soon, and you're you're very much now in the Netflix business. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, I really am. I, you know, after Hush, uh, they they greenlit Gerald's Game. They were you know the only people that were brave enough to make that movie. Yeah, and now I'm doing uh, Haunting Hill House. So Amazing first first TV show. What is it about them that sets them apart? Because they they do seem to be willing to take risks. Yes, uh, they they are very willing to take risks. They really love to activate filmmakers uh-huh. um, and the other thing I love about them is that you know you have direct access to your audience immediately I, I'm convinced more people saw Hush the weekend that it dropped on Netflix than would have seen it if we put it out theatrically oh wow do yeah. you get the numbers because on Netflix if famously oh, no. they don't give numbers yeah much. no they don't give numbers they'll tell you like it's doing very well uh, but they, <laughs> they won't they won't give you any any details okay but yeah. the fact that they've asked you back Again and again, and they've backed you again and again. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to believe them. That indicates it's going well. Yeah, fantastic. It seems so. So this is uh, this is Gerald's game. Is one of the it's it's a bit of an oddity, really, because it's one of the last remaining, I would say, Stephen King certainly Stephen King novels. Yeah, that haven't been adapted for either film or television. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, we could talk that it's just come out in the big screen, but there was obviously a small screen version. Yeah. Uh, going back, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, a couple of decades ago. Um, 25 years since the book came out uh, have you been have you had your eye on it for those 25 years uh, what is it about this that's made it difficult for people to adapt in the past oh well I, I read it when I was 19 years old I was in college mm-hmm. uh, and I put the book down and I was uh, I was floored uh, I remember I had goose flesh all over my arms and I thought this is incredible and mm-hmm. this is unfilmable <laughs> uh, and so I spent the next 19 years trying to figure out how to how to shoot it. I used to carry the book around with me uh, when I moved to LA to take general meetings when people would say, what's your dream project? I would yeah, pull it yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to take the novel as it is mm-hmm. and kind of see how it, you know, can be a movie. And it, it took me a really long time to wrap my head around it. For um, people who don't know the novel, why, why is it unfilmable? Because the, the, the log line, basic log line yeah. of Gerald's game is, it seems very filmable to people who haven't read the book. Right. It seems like something you could just easily... Yeah, it seems like a 127 hours yeah. you know, yeah. style survival movie, and mm-hmm. it is. Um, but the book uh, takes place pretty much entirely in the protagonist's head. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a stream of consciousness you know, experience. And there are other things happening, but the impact of the book and the way you get to know uh, the character of Jessie is by diving completely into her mind. And that's really hard to make cinematic you know that's that's, it's hard to get a lot of that rich characterization out there in a way that uh that's visually interesting Mm -hmm. uh and that people can grab onto because Mm -hmm. you've got this character who's immobile for pretty much the whole story yeah and in a tiny room and that's yeah yeah, that's kind of the opposite of of what you look for when you're actively trying to make a movie yeah 
Yeah. Absolutely, because there's a there's a there's a thirty minute version of this of this movie. In fact, there's probably a ninety page version of the of the story, sure, which is completely different and very much focuses on the external. Yeah, but that's why that's just one of one of the things I've always loved about Stephen King. I mean, he you know it. People look at him and they think of him as a horror a horror writer, but he's more than that. His characters are more than that. He really gets deep into the psychology of his characters, and that's certainly something that that, that is the case here too. Yes. The horror in in his books is born of the characters. Yeah. And you accept them as real people, uh, you relate to them, and you accept his world that he creates Mm -hmm. as the real world. Uh, And I think that's what makes the genre elements land so hard. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not always easy to translate that, I think, into into film, which is why you have this, you know, very actively mixed bag uh, when it comes to his adaptations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so you you had the paperback. I presume it was the paperback you had in your pocket. Not the hardback. No, I, I carried the hardback. You yeah. carried the hardback around with you? Yeah, in my in my wow. laptop bag. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, because I thought maybe you were walking around with your pocket. Hey, guys, I'll just pull this out. Gerald's game. I want to make it at some point. So you, you walk around with a hardback book. You take it out of your laptop bag at uh, general meetings and pitches yeah. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the general reaction been for 19 years? Uh, either they were not familiar with the story. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, once they got familiar with it, they said it's unfilmable. Uh, <laughs> or they were familiar with the story and they just said it's unfilmable. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it was a very weird thing to kind of break out. And, and I would say the whole thing is just, you know, just this woman in a room by herself, uh, handcuffed yeah. to a bedpost. And they're like, that's not a movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so I couldn't get any support for it. And uh, it was also very telling, you know, kind of like what you said at the beginning, that it was a story that had been around so long and no one had adapted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they were like, why not? There must be a reason. People yeah. have tried. And over the years, there have been attempts made, uh, but people ran into the same problems again and again. So, mm. uh, so yeah, they uh, people were pretty weirded out and skeptical when I bring it up. So uh, how did you win Netflix over? What was your... What was your pitch? How did you make the unfilmable filmable? Did you have a mood board? What, did, what sort of stuff did you uh, employ? What oh, did, I, I had the script. Okay. Yeah. Uh, after Stephen King saw Oculus and really liked it, he gave me a crack at the script. Uh-huh. And so I had it for years. And Netflix, you know, we had such a good experience with Hush uh, that they said, what else do you have? And I just showed them the script. And uh, initially they were like, wow, this is weird. You know, this is a really strange movie um how do you see it working and i I would talk a lot about you know how we would approach it and then you know they said what do you want to do next i said i i want to make this film um Hmm. and no one will let me okay well uh (laughs) let's do it and and they they got behind it in a big way but i don't think anybody else would have i I don't think any any other studio in town would have uh (laughs) would have laughed us out of the room so, uh, so they give you the green light, yeah, uh, and then you uh, you get to it. Can you talk about how you made the unfilmable filmable then, in terms of your visual style and in terms of bringing uh, that those sort of inner voices? Because as you said, it's not just Jesse's inner voice. She also yeah. imagines Gerald coming back and, and talking to her. Yeah, and that's one of the big differences between uh, the film and the and the book. Mm. Uh, we tried to take all of that inner discussion that that's going on in her head and put it out there on the screen with the two characters we know the best yeah. um, with uh, Jesse and Gerald. And, and so that opened, it, it actually opened up the story and it let me take large chunks of the book and just put it in their mouths. Um, mm. And I could, I could, you know, copy and paste some of my favorite, <laughs> uh, favorite King writing and, and have Bruce Greenwood deliver it, you know? Yes. Um, Cause King's dialogue is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and this story in particular has some 
really lovely monologues that in the book are, are just these pages of, you know, wonderful material that she's contemplating. But mm. in the movie are, are monologues delivered by Bruce and Carla. And, yeah. uh, and that's some of my favorite stuff in the, in the whole film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, we, we, we were very actively trying to make sure that, uh, it never got boring visually uh-huh. when, when you're stuck in one room, that's really hard. Yeah. Uh, tried never to repeat camera angles. Um, that must be tough. Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> it was tough for that amount of time. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see how it goes over because yeah, yeah. it's such a weird little animal. But, uh, no, so, uh, uh, one, of, one of the things I loved about it was the fact that yes, you have this uh, this survival horror aspect with you know Jesse trying to get out uh, from this predicament that quite frankly I would just give it up and died. Uh, <laughs> and then you have this really wonderful strain where where you have. The, uh, the the ghost, for a better word, of Gerald coming back to her. And then you have, well, I'm going to call Jesse 2, I guess. Yeah, uh, which that's is, what she's yeah. Yeah, referred to in the script. Oh, fantastic. Um, you have Jesse 2, who's a different version of Jesse, the sort of the inner strength that Jesse can't muster up. Yeah. And what you have was essentially a three-way marriage counseling session going on in the middle of this Yeah quite you know this this gripping thriller and i really loved that stuff i loved the fact that you know, she was getting into it with her husband even though it was obviously a, a, a figment of her imagination uh, yeah. because i imagine you wanted to cast bruce greenwood and give him something to do oh yeah and that was one of the things about the book where it was like gerald is dead on page 15 <laughs> and that's that uh but you know Stephen had actually recommended uh bruce greenwood okay um, for gerald and i thought it was so great but you know uh my very first pass at the script it, it was always that you know he was going to be with us the whole time um yeah if, if for no other reason than to give us you know uh, to give us a a voice uh to her most pessimistic thoughts and yes. let it be you know let it kind of play out in the battle of the sexes that exists within their marriage because mm-hmm. I, I do think in the way that you know lissy's story is a beautiful yeah. look at a wonderful marriage yeah. you know gerald's game is a look at a marriage that's not Yes, doing so good, uh, but it has a lot to say about marriage, and and I, I didn't want to lose any of that. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, and uh, and Carlo Gugino and yeah. Bruce Greenwood are fantastic in the film. Before we get to talking about the performances specifically, uh, Bruce Gerald's heart attack in this film yeah. is amazing, <laughs> uh, and it's all on Bruce as far as I can see because he is semi-naked topless and he has to fake what is a massive cardiac arrest Uh, there's a I think it's like a vein uh, that runs kind of from the center of his chest up his neck yeah Um, he just did that how did he do that? Did, I have no you, idea. did you ask us some sort of weird acting voodoo? What yeah, I, I have no idea what he did. I, I just know that we were all at the monitor, like, "Oh my god, is he okay?" Uh, <laughs> Shit, we've lost Bruce Greenwood. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, uh, quick! So that, that's a little too real, but yeah, he 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 sells that. Um, yeah, yeah, in, in a big way, and he just he just did it all. We didn't enhance it one bit. That's amazing. So, yeah. did you talk to him about the stages of a heart attack? Because there's little, there's lovely little, lovely little bits of foreshadowing of the heart attack. That's a great. Yeah, word. He kind of rolls his shoulder. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, some of that, you know, some of that was written into the book. So uh-huh. we, yes. we had signposts there. But yeah, he uh, he looked into what it would really look like and how long it would take, and you know, had his his interpretation of that. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, we 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 went through that at great length, and we rehearsed the scene leading up to it. It's a fifteen minute mm-hmm. scene. And we rehearsed that uh, when the actors first got to Alabama, where we shot, we we spent the first three days just rehearsing that scene, uh, knowing that we'd have to break it up over two days of shooting, and they'd yeah. have to just 
perform it uh, 15 minutes without a break. Uh, but, but yeah, they, they were, they were remarkable. So, um, the, the performances, I mean, there's a, there's a lot on display emotionally as well, but I imagine you knew that the, the, the actors would have to be in a certain state of undress. Were they worried about that? Was that something that was on their minds? I'm, I, it was definitely on their minds. It was on yeah. mine too. And it, one of the first questions Bruce asked me when, when we got on the phone uh, to talk about the part when we had first offered it, and he said, what, what am I wearing? <laughs> and and I said, ah, you know, uh, underwear. And he was like, the whole time? Like, yeah. Yeah, the whole time. Uh, and yeah, I, everyone was really sensitive to that. You know, Jesse in the book is nude. Yeah. And we knew we weren't doing that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was one of the first things they both asked. And they got so comfortable with it, though, Bruce... Uh, Bruce would go to lunch and he wouldn't get dressed. He would just, we, we got so used to seeing him walking around in his underwear and he wouldn't change it. Uh, that when he did put on clothes, uh, later in the, in the film at the end, it felt really weird on set. Uh, like we were just so used to naked Bruce. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they were, uh, they, they were both troopers with that because I, I can't imagine being that exposed for that long. Yeah. So when you met him and you clothes on, you were like, who is this guy? Can you escort this guy from the set, please? Uh, yeah. You know? It felt weird. It was like he, he came around the corner in a, in a button-up shirt and everybody was just kind of like, ugh, what? What? Yeah. That's not Bruce. Um, and he had this, you know, uh, we had this dummy mm. uh, that, you know, was, was a perfect Bruce replica, also in its underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bruce would sometimes, you know, lay down and take a nap. Uh, when we would do lunch breaks and things. And twice I walked up and started a conversation with the dummy, um, <laughs> thinking that it was Bruce asleep. Uh, they, they looked so much alike. And, and Amazing. Yeah, and that was only because I, I only ever saw him in underwear. Yeah. Did you ask him what his secret is? He's 61 years old, and he is ripped. Yeah. What the hell? Uh, and in the book, you know, Gerald is not like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, um, Bruce had decided early on, he said, I think Gerald is, you know, kind of your textbook narcissist. Mm. And I agreed. I, I thought that was a great way to look at the character. And uh, Bruce hit the gym immediately. And uh, when he showed up on set, everybody was really amazed. And yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, God, I wish, it, I hope I look like that. <laughs> I'm in my 60s. And I've, got, I've, got, I've got a few decades, yeah. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and hit the gym after this. Uh, and, and Carla's fantastic in the yeah. film. I mean, this is a hell of a performance and a hell of a role. Um, can you talk about choosing her and uh, why you wanted Carla? Uh, when we first uh, started going out with offers, she wasn't available. She was booked on another movie. Um, but I, I've always thought Carla's amazing. And, and this character requires such bravery from an actor. And we, we always thought it would either scare an actress away, and it, and it did on a number of occasions when we would take it out and try to get interest, um, or it would really energize them. And with Carla, it, it energized her, and, and you know, we, we very early said, this is going to live and die on you, and it's either going to be amazing or a disaster. How did you how did you shoot it? Did you shoot it um, because obviously Jesse two is much more together, yeah. Uh, and Jesse one at, at many points is on the verge of panic and the verge of giving up. Yeah. How did you did you alternate the, the alternate the the, the, shoot, the shooting there or did you? Yeah, and we had we had a stand in who would who would you know switch out uh, for Jesse one and Jesse two and mm. Carla would prefer uh, to start the day as Jesse two and kind of oh, get really? all that okay. out and then transition over to Jesse one. Um, but that was really hard, and it was it was really difficult for her to track kind of the Jesse two performance uh, 
in characterization without letting it spill into Jesse one sure, sure. until we wanted it to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really, it got very confusing at times, but she really, uh, she really persevered. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk Stephen King and your, sure. in, your interactions with the great man. Have, uh, you, have you met him? Have you, uh, I've never met him. I've never uh, talked to him on the phone, uh-huh. but we email. Okay. And uh, that is awesome uh, as, a, <laughs> as a fanboy. Um, you know, we, we would talk, uh, well, we'd email early on. He, you know, would read the script and, mm-hmm. and, and when we were casting, you know, he was involved in that. Okay. Uh, but then we finished the movie and I had to send it to him. And that I was terrified, uh, but he wrote back a lovely email. He loved the movie, and he he sent me this email, and I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I printed it out and I framed it and I, I hung it <laughs> uh, in my living room. Um, and now we now we email back and forth, you know, here and there. What's his uh, email writing style like? Is it very Stephen King, or is it more off the cuff? Uh, off the cuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it, you, but still you, better written than most people will write. Emails, oh God, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very casual. It's very uh, cheeky. He's very funny. Okay, um, and irreverent. Does he use emojis? Not with me. <laughs> but I, I can't. I can't speak. You know, <laughs> I can't speak with confidence about anybody else. But not not yet with me. I haven't gotten to emoji level. <laughs> See if you can take it up a notch after this, Mike. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. try. Yeah, just send him, just send him a few emojis to see what happens. See what happens. See what happens. Yeah. Um, so we, you'd say you're probably one of his constant readers, then? Yes. Yes, absolutely. When did you first uh, start reading? Fifth constantly? grade. Okay. Yeah. Which uh, is for for British listeners, that is what age? Fifth grade is. Kind of oh, uh, ten. Okay, ten. Okay, good. Uh, and my so first too young to read Stephen King, essentially. Very. Yeah, and and I was it was because I was scared of horror movies. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I, I'm too scared to watch horror movies, so I'll, I'll read Stephen King. That'll be better. Uh-huh. Um, okay. <laughs> and traumatize me. Uh, and the first the first one I read was It, so I, I like jumped headfirst into... Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you jumped straight into the 1,400-page behemoth and... Yeah. Uh, and-, and I was scarred for life, but I, I <laughs> loved it, and uh, I was petrified. Like, it, it just burrowed into my brain, and... Uh, I loved how scared I got, but I also loved how emotionally invested I was in all of his books. Like yeah. his his characters are so rich. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think that more than anything, kind of informed the way I try to I try to tell stories. Yeah. So did you then obsessively work your way through his biography? And yeah, uh, I I got all of them. I I, I think the only one. I didn't read by the time I finished college. I hadn't read The Dark Tower because it was just such a, a massive undertaking. That was exactly the same. So I started that late, uh, but I loved it. Mm. And uh, Eyes of the Dragon I hadn't read. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I saved that one too because I'm, I'm not normally into, into fantasy. But, yeah, because yeah. it, it doesn't, it feels like one of those strange entries in his. Yeah. His work. It just kind of seemed off on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I can um, I can see why. And Dark Tower is is daunting. Yeah. Not the size of it, the scale of it. And yeah. yeah it, totally daunting. And yeah. it helps to have read everything else when you get into Dark Tower. Yeah. Did King act as a kind of gateway drug into horror? Absolutely. Yeah. Um and it was so funny, you know, trying to avoid horror by diving into King. Uh he made me appreciate horror. And what it could do, that, that it could be about a lot more than being afraid, you know, that it, that it could be this uh, kind of window into our darker nature that we could explore in a really safe space. Um, yeah. And, and for me, that kind of defined horror. Yeah. So from there, did you start watching stuff or did you start reading other people? Like, you know, did you go and graduate to other authors after that? Or I did. You, uh, you know, I, I, 
I went through, I, I go through phases with authors, but you know, yeah. I, I think I went right off King to Dean Koontz uh-huh. and I went right off that to Dan Simmons. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I just heard they're doing uh, uh summer night, which is going to be pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, That's good. Um, but yeah, it, it, uh, it was a gateway drug in a lot of ways. And luckily it, it also, uh, spoiled me, you know, it, it kind of set the tone for what I expected out of horror. Quick game of Desert Island King. Ooh, you have to. You're, you're on Desert Island, um, okay. which of course has happened in a King short story. Yeah. Um, uh, what King novel do you take, and what King movie do you take? Oh boy, that's brutal. Damn. Uh, damn, that's brutal. I, I would. Uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, I would. I would take. Uh, I would probably take the stand. Uh-huh. Novel, yep. Uh, and movie. That's because it's long as well. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like <laughs> I mean, you really get to. You've got a lot of time to pass. A this long time island. on this island. And uh, I would, I would probably take uh, Stand by Me for the movies. Interesting. So or maybe Shawshank. Then what? I'll let you off. You can have two. You can have two movies. It's fine. Two. Okay. Then you yeah. Stand by Me and Shawshank. All right. There They're you go. With me. Fantastic. Because yeah. the stand's going to take ages to get through anyway. So yeah, it's all good. Brilliant. Mike Flanagan. Fantastic. Thanks so much indeed. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Mike Flanagan there. We'll talk about Gerald's game soon enough. But for now, it is time to talk about this week's, I guess, the biggest release, at least in the cinemas, is Goodbye, Christopher Robin. Is that a Batman spinoff, Helen? What, what, what is that? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. No, no, it is not. Um, it is uh, the story of A.A. Milne, who's played here by Donald Gleeson, um, and his real-life son, who was christened Christopher Robin, although, Christopher Robin, although he was never called that he was called Billy Moon growing up Um, and just before I say anything else about this film if you haven't already seen the trailer please don't see the trailer (laughs) Um, please don't watch it go see the film because it is a recommendation we'd love it it's four stars Uh and then watch the trailer and admire what an incredibly mendacious thing they've done with it. It is super misleading uh-huh. um, because it is very twee and very cute and designed to make your granny want to see this. As is the poster. As is the poster. Mm-hmm. And it is totally not that film. Okay. Because A.A. Milne in this, in this story, uh, as in real life, uh, fought in World War I and came back from it, uh, you know, traumatized, absolutely suffering PTSD, uh, as we would now call it. Um, but having no sort of language or framework to express that in at the time and sort of just kind of struggling on. Um, his wife, Daphne, who's played here by Margot Robbie, uh, is portrayed as a, a sort of a party girl. Like, she doesn't want to know. She doesn't want to hear this nonsense. This is not what she signed up for. This is not the guy she married. Um, and she herself is traumatized in turn because she gives birth to this kid, but she didn't know how that was going to work. No one had t- discussed her own biology with her and sort of explained how childbirth works, so she's also kind of messed up. So the two of them basically hand this kid off to the nanny, who's played by Kelly MacDonald, and try and go on about their lives and just going out to parties and first nights of shows and just, you know, being part of Society London until it kind of becomes a bit too much for Milne. He moves them all to the countryside and even then Daphne still wants to keep going and the kid is completely neglected by his parents. He's played at this point by by Will Tilson. Um, and so it goes on until he's about six or seven years old and for once uh, he's left with his dad in the countryside when his mum is in town and his nurse has gone off to look after her mother and the two of them have to actually 
interact. And it's during those sort of precious few weeks that they basically play in the woods that uh, A. A. Milne realizes his son is pretty awesome, actually. He's a, an adorable little kid. And he's inspired to write again. The problem being that he then publishes this stuff. It's an immediate sensation. And once again, poor Billy's life is kind of ruined by his parents because they commodify his childhood, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the plot. It is really dark. It is really, at times, very disturbing to modernize, I think. It is not the comforting, nostalgic vision of upper-class England that you think it's going to be from those posters. And it's kind of an indictment of everything that the Winnie the Pooh books sort of idealize in a lot of ways. Really, really clever really, really well played by all involved um, and just just harsh at times, really harsh, but mm. but not, not to the extent of being super tough to watch. Okay. Performance is great. Performance is great, yeah. You, you don't get that cast and then get bad performances. And even like sort of supporting cast, you've got people like Stephen Campbell Moore and, and people like that in there. And uh, yeah, Kelly McDonald is fantastic. Just so, you know, emotional and such a contrast to the parents that it, it works brilliantly. Fantastic. I should also say, by the way, um, try and go into Blade Runner 2049 without having seen anything mm-hmm. as well. Uh, don't watch the trailers. If you've, if you've somehow managed to avoid the trailers, don't watch them. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably a, a good tactic. Uh, so four stars in for Goodbye, Christopher Robin. And Terry, Daphne is up next. I just know it's a film you love. What what what? I- Tell people what Daphne is. So Daphne, it actually began life as a character rather than a film. So Peter Mackie Burns, who this is his first first feature film, he and Emily Beecham, who plays Daphne, who's the lead actress, they they kind of had a um, working kind of professional friendship and they workshopped this character of Daphne over the course of of many years. And they actually, I think, did a short film, um, Happy Birthday to Me, of it first... Now, Daphne is a early 30s, big city woman, and you kind of think you know where this is going, right? You think, oh, it's sex in the city and it's cocktails and tripping over in my expensive shoes and, and you know, ooh, having uh, kind of lovely little uh, flings and, and the romance of living in London and being a single woman. It is absolutely, categorically none of those things. So this is a film that I actually left going. I've never, ever felt such a realistic depiction of a woman living in any big city in the world, whether that be London, New York or whatever, as I have in this film. So she's a 30-something chef, um, chef's assistant, I think, actually, technically. And she's single. And it basically details um, her life, her daily existence, which is essentially a difficult relationship with her mother. Um, She goes to work. She's hungover. Sometimes she throws up. She has kind of meaningless, mainly sex um, with men in bathrooms, takes the odd recreational drug. And it's kind of, this is her life. And it's quite a... um, it's not a difficult existence, it's just life's a bit shit and that's fine. And she's she's quite an unsympathetic character, you don't really warm to her. She's she's in terms vulnerable, um, but you don't pity her, she can be quite hard and then there are moments of real softness. She's just an incredibly realistic, kind of actual, genuine woman living in a big city. She seems lonely at times, other times she seems like she needs nobody. Um, Emily Beecham is absolutely remarkable. and so the whole, good. The, isn't she incredible? And yeah, the whole amazing. story revolves around, you know, this is her life and there's nothing really happens of great note. And then she witnesses an attack um, on a shopkeeper um, and the violence of that moment, the consequences of that kind of rumble throughout her life in unexpected 
ways and really cause her to kind of not examine her life in a really cliche way. They avoid almost every single trope you would expect in this film. But there are consequences um, and she does kind of evolve and it's interesting how she evolves and changes as a character but there is no big... And it's not a spoiler to say there is no big transformative arc of a woman who's previously led a, you know, a sexually full life suddenly put, you know, that classic thing in train work where she pulls away her booze and decides to be good huh. and goes after the man she really loves. None of that exists. And I came out of this film that I'd just gone to see as a screening, didn't really know much about it. And I was floored by it, mainly by Emily Beecham. I mean, it's pretty much she holds the entire film. There are supporting cast, but it's essentially her on screen mm-hmm. for the entire time. The depiction of London is in, is just incredibly intoxicating. Um, the way it's shot is really intimate. Um, and a lot of people have said it's kind of like television and it, it has a lot in common with the likes of Fleabag, but I actually think it's just a really... It's, it's quite a small, quite intimate, mm-hmm. but inc- incredibly impacting film. And I'm going to go and see it again this, this weekend for a second time because I really... I really did love it. And as I say, just for me, the power of recognition of seeing such a true-to-life depiction of of a single woman in kind of in a big city living that kind of existence, I I just found it incredibly powerful. And I think Emily Beecham is just a revelation. 100%. I really hope she gets a bit more attention after this. She was in Hail Caesar last year as the sort of Margaret O'Hara-looking lady in the green dress in the... Um, in the scene with Old Narenreich. Yes. Which, and she's really good. She doesn't get much to do, but she's really good at it in that scene. Um, but I just, yeah, I really want her to kind of break through after this. It's fantastic. Yeah, and she's done bits of TV and shorts and what have you, but you would hope that this has kind of a transformative effect for her because I think she is an incredible talent. The nuance in her performance, um, just you'd see her character shift with kind of one movement of her mouth. It's, it's extraordinary. She's... Um, She's fantastic. So yeah, I I simply hope that she kind of gets some much much meatier, probably high profile roles after this. But for now, Daphne, and if it's not in your local cinema, I'd, I'd really recommend going and hunting it out. Yeah, because um, it's definitely worth it. Sounds great. Four stars then for Daphne. And uh, completely forgot to mention that Star Trek Discovery has started playing on Netflix. Yes, I don't have a lot of time, but uh, you seem to like it. I do. I had a, a few sort of... Um, two episodes in? Yeah, two episodes in. I had a few sort of reservations in the first episode because I felt like they were going very dark with it and very sort of morally compromised. And I actually don't want my Starfleet massively morally compromised. I think I've probably talked about this when we talked about um, Into Darkness. Um, I think I think we need Gene Roddenberry's idealism and his hope for the future right now especially. Um but I think there, I think that is there. I think it is going to be there, and I think uh, the the characters they've set up are fantastic. Um, Sonequa Martin Green is great so far as Michael Burnham. Um, her background is interesting. Um, her relationship with her commander, who was played by Michelle Yeoh, is interesting. Um, and I'm just excited to see where it goes from here. Um, I don't want all of my Star Trek series to be set in the past as this one is. This is sort of telling the story of how the Klingon War began and unfolded, um, which is obviously the past in even the original series. Um, but at the same time, it does seem to be going kind of interesting places. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to allow it. I'm really, yeah, I'm really <laughs> looking forward to see where, seeing where it goes. Okay, so that's on Netflix if you want to check it out yes. in the UK and it's on, controversially, CBS All Access in the States. So the first, correct me if I'm wrong here, the first two episodes were on CBS conventionally and then if you want to get the rest you have to pay 
It's a subscription-only service to see the rest of the episodes, which has got some people uh, in a bit of a... Uh, Yeah. yeah. So there we go. And then very, very quickly, I will talk about Gerald's game. Um, so we, we've been in the, something of a purple patch for Stephen King adaptations recently, in, at least in terms of the numbers we've been getting. Uh, the Dark Tower and It and now this. And as I said in my review, two out of three ain't bad, as Meatloaf mm -hmm. once said. So this tips the scales in the, in the positive direction. Um, it is a very good adaptation of a book that I weirdly never really thought was unfilmable. Uh, I know it is a very, very simple premise, Uh, so as we discussed, Carl Gacchino uh, and Bruce Green would go away for a, a dirty weekend. Uh, their marriage is not as as uh, healthy or as rosy as it all may seem. Uh, he has a heart attack uh, and leaves her chained to the bed with a savage dog lurking, something that may or may not be a demon popping in as well every now and again. And of course, the voices in her head, uh, personified by Bruce Greenwood, uh, who has an incredible six-pack for a man who's 61 Bloody hell, I need to get down the gym. Um, <laughs> and uh, Carla Gugino again as a sort of more assertive version of herself trying to... And so he hectors her and she provides advice that may get her out of the situation. Uh, I thought this is, for the most part, terrific. It, 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 uh, it's part marriage drama, surprising marriage drama, given that the husband is already dead when the couple start having an argument. Um, and part survival horror as this resourceful lady tries desperately to get out of a situation from which there seems to be no escape. Uh, and those two elements come together really, really nicely. Uh, I have slight issues with where it goes in the third act. There are some things in terms of flashbacks that maybe Mike Flanagan might have jettisoned um, and there's some things as well there's certain directions of the movie that the novel takes that perhaps you, he could have excised and focused purely on the situation at hand but that said very very effective stuff uh, gruesome in all the right places and four stars for Gerald's Game which is on Netflix right now uh, and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast uh, join us next week for more film related fun we'll be tucking into Blade Runner 2049 mmm that's a good meal uh, with its director Denis Villeneuve and its producer one Sir Ridley Scott oh yes uh, but until then until that auspicious occasion it is goodbye from Terry Goodbye. Were you surprised by that? Like, <laughs> you know when you like, don't recognise your own name? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, all the time. <laughs> Frequently. Sorry, do you want to do it again? No, 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 it's uh, fine. Yeah. That's good. I, I like to like leave these little bits of reality in the podcast. <sighs> so, so, so much reality. If somebody could remind me of my own name, that would be great. Terry, on rough, rough percentage-wise, how much of this week's podcast did you actually listen to while you were in the room? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just a little checking. 73. 73%. That's a good number. Um, it's a pass. It's yeah. a pass. It's good. It's more than a pass. That's, that's like, a, that's uh, like, a, a like, a, like a B plus, A minus, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a 2-2. Give an A minus to that. It's like, it's not 2-2. 2-2. It's a 2-1. It's a 2-1. It's a definite 2-1. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. Uh, and it's goodbye for me. I am off to download, as recommended by Helen, the Soggy Bottoms podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.